you know, for anybody listening who is young in their career and isn't sure that is this the career for me, just soak up whatever you're doing at that time, whatever, whatever you can learn, whatever skills it's giving you, those won't leave you. You will have those and those will come with you into the future. Connor's run is a run he did from our home in Sandringham to the boat sheds for running. A lot of people know that story. He hated running. He actually hated running. So that's a bit of fun. And he would actually find it very, very funny. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Welcome back, beautiful people. This week's episode is another one of many that's been shuffled around and pushed back for various reasons, including COVID-19, but that has ended up coming out just when I think our guests' insights are most powerful. A big part of seizing your yay is acknowledging that it's both the best and the worst times of our life that play a role in our journey, and if we ever needed some guiding words on turning adversity, uncertainty, and even grief into something positive, Liz Dawes is your woman. Like many of our guests, I absolutely loved diving into her earlier years first because she had an entire life and career going from a small town in Wisconsin to traveling the world leading multi-million dollar sales and marketing accounts before the chapter most of us know her from now as an adopted Melbourneian and internationally recognized CEO and chairman of a charitable foundation. Liz and her husband Scott had their world turned upside down when their son Connor was diagnosed with pediatric brain cancer, the number one disease killer of young people, and passed away a few years later. We discussed the many different ways people process grief and what they turn it into, but how just a few short months later, Liz held the first Connors Run, founding the Robert Connor Dawes Foundation, which is now the biggest paediatric brain cancer foundation in Australia. As she puts it in her TEDx talk last year, Liz has reframed, reimagined and reaffirmed her way forward and has now raised over 7 million impact dollars that's helping fund research, care programs and so much more. Parts of this one are heavy but incredibly meaningful and with a beautiful happy ending or happy beginning of what is now eight years this year into Connor's run and an amazing legacy that she's created for Connor. I hope you are as moved as I am by Liz and that many of you will be joining me for Connor's run the way that it's been reimagined for this year. You'll hear details at the end. I hope you enjoy. Liz, welcome to the show. It is such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you, Sarah. It is just a real pleasure for me. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for your patience as well. This is another one of those episodes that we've had in the works for months and months, and we're going to do it in person. And I always find that when there's a delay for any reason, it turns out when we do eventually record that that was the time when we needed that exact guest message. And I think you have such an incredible, incredible powerful outlook on adversity and turning grief and trauma and challenge into something wonderful. So I'm just so excited to have you today. Well, I've I've had a lot of experience. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I definitely have had the experience. Well, I would say it's definitely good in terms of what you've done with it, (laughs) which we will hear all about, of course. But just to start off, I usually start with an icebreaker and I've added a new one recently, which is really just to ask how you are, how you're coping in isolation. I think the world more and more at this time needs humans to connect and just touch base with each other. So how are you going as a fellow Melburnian in isolation? I think it's a challenge. It's a challenge for everybody. I'm 
you know, a natural people person. I love, you know, I'd love to be sitting with you in your studio or at a cafe talking. I don't think there's any substitute for real human to human contact. So, but I also know we're, we're in a very, very unusual situation. And, you know, I just feel like hunkering down, doing what we can do for the next couple of weeks. And hopefully there'll be a light at the end of the tunnel. I always like to look ahead to, you know, that sort of situation where we can get out of it. But I'm, I'm trying to keep myself busy. We're, obviously busy planning Connor's run. Mm. Um, we'll, we can talk about that. So I'm okay. I wasn't very healthy in ISO 1.0. I was doing lots of baking and eating, <laughs> drinking. And so I'm, I'm trying to be just a little bit better in that regard this time around, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> Something you also said just before we started recording about the fact that you're looking ahead to the light of the end of the tunnel, but also not looking too far ahead, I think was yes. really important. That's helped me as well. Not sort of projecting plans. Yes. Just taking it day by day, just be gentle with yourself. Yes. Each day is a challenge and if you get through it, yes. that's great. So, and sometimes that's all you can do is looking at your one your one day. So I'm trying to get some, it sounds cliche and, and not, you know, but just to have some outside time. I know we're limited, but mm. just getting out to do a walk. We've got two dogs and my husband, you know, uh, meet up with one friend, whatever, just to have that, I think is good to have a change just to get outside, but also just to have some change of scenery as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So now for the actual icebreaker, I love to start every episode with asking people what the most down-to-earth thing is about them. And there's so many wonderful things that are down-to-earth about you, especially the fact that you went to Beaver Dam High School. <laughs> that's actually, that's funny because that's the one thing that I was thinking about in terms of being down-to-earth. You can tell from my accent. I'm not from Australia, but we've lived here for 20 years. So it really is our second home. But yes, I'm from Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. When, <laughs> when the Australians fly into LA and then jump on another plane to New York, we're about two thirds of the way over. Wisconsin's north of Chicago. And we've got Lake Michigan, one of the big Great Lakes to the east and the Mississippi River borders to the west. So that's a bit of geography. But yes, I'm from a small town and uh, went to the large university for college, the uh, Madison, Wisconsin, which was fantastic. Uh, but I had a very close cohort of girlfriends in high school. But, you know, some of them went to different places for school and we sort of kept in touch but lost touch. But a few years ago, we had a friend who was unwell and we all came together on Messenger. There, I look today there are 20 of us on that messenger. Oh, wow. It's really lovely that we've reconnected. And I've been with those friends for over 40 years, many oh, of them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think lifelong friends who have been there right since the beginning definitely keep you grounded and down to earth. <laughs> and it's funny, before you said Melbourne, not Melbourne. So yes. it's clear you've been here for a little while, but I love the way you've still kept your Wisconsin roots. And it's funny because people say, oh, you don't, you, you haven't adopted the accent. I'm guessing there's some words that'll come through, but you know, old habits. We left the US when we were 35. So, you know, we had been there obviously a long, long time. Our kids sound Aussie. Yeah. <laughs> Do they have any American accent at all? No, it's very sad. <laughs> Aussies through and through. Well, going back to those very early Wisconsin days, the first section is your way TA from then. So from all the way back to childhood, Liz, and following your story until now. And I love exploring people's pathway from sort of well before the chapter we mostly know you from now to remind everyone that life really unfolds in chapters, you know, many of which you never expected. And I love to look at what you were thinking at the time along the way. So what were you like as a younger child? What did you think you wanted to be? I was, I was the youngest. I have two older brothers. They're seven and eight years older. And I come from a very sporty family, seriously super sporty. So brothers who are good at every sport, parents who were very sporty. So either the, our family was playing sport or watching sport. And while I was sporty and I've enjoyed sport all my life, I had an insatiable curiosity 
for everything. I was the child that drove people nuts on the long car rides because <laughs> I just had a million questions. I wanted to figure everything out through every stage of my life. That has been a big part, just trying to understand, you know, I knew that we had lived in this small town, but there obviously was this big world out there. And so both my grandmothers were voracious readers. Mm. And from a very early age, they put books in my hands and that was the world just opening up. I was also probably a natural leader. I was our student body president or school captain, and, and I did love swimming, and I swam competitively for 10 years. And I always thought when I moved to Australia, I had a bit of a kinship with the swimming mentality of the Aussies, because even <laughs> though it was freezing cold in Wisconsin, I was up early swimming laps in the pool at five in the morning, uh, for a big part of it. So then after high school, uh, I went to our university. It was 40,000 students. And you, move, you move. So I moved to Madison. And that literally, it's about a 40-minute car ride, but it was a whole different world. Madison is a thriving, busy, progressive city. It's the capital of Wisconsin. It's beautiful. It's uh, based on two lakes. And I had embraced everything yeah. that university life had to offer, but maybe different. Listen, I came from a great family, mm -hmm. but I knew that I had to go to college and get a job because there was no fallback position for me. So I was very focused. I got a commerce degree in, at Madison, and I was really determined you know, obviously to get a job. So I was fortunate enough to be hired by a manufacturing company, which also doesn't sound very glamorous. I had graduated in sales and marketing, but it was amazing. I moved to Kansas City with that job in the first two years, and that was a whole other, in my early 20s, living in another city, and I lived in an apartment with, it's a bit like the show's <laughs> Was it Melrose Place? Yes. We, we had a bit of that, actually. It was really fun. <laughs> and I'm still great friends with a lot of those people that lived in that apartment complex. But I didn't know a soul in Kansas City. So I think moving, you know, having that adventurous spirit, I definitely had it and had a great two years with that job. And I could get all into the products. They're fairly technical. But um, then I came back to Wisconsin and I managed four years components for floppy disks. So I I'm really dating that. myself now. But it was fascinating because they handed me a job at the age of I was 24 or 25 for the global sales and marketing for a product that had zero sales when I took it. And I think at the high, we ended up getting close to 15 million in sales four years Whoa. later before the CD came along and ruined it all. <laughs> <laughs> but, but during that time, I traveled everywhere where microfloppy disks were made. So exciting places like Ireland, Asia, Mexico. And I was single. I was dating my husband then, but I could go anywhere and I wanted to go anywhere. So that was really fascinating and a, a great, great time. But then got married, started having children, and obviously things changed. I mean, I remember working mainly with all men because it was manufacturing. And I said to the jet guys that I worked with as I was starting to have babies. They were too, but it was, I don't know, it just seemed different. And I said, I figured out the glass ceiling. It's called motherhood. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, I made those choices and my husband and I together, but I, I was happy at that time to try to do a work-life balance. I was the first employee of our company who negotiated to work part-time, so to do my job, uh, but four days a week. And then when that was when Connor was born. And then when we had our second child, Nick, I went to three days. And then when I was pregnant with Hannah, that's when I thought, all right, this is hard. My husband was traveling a lot with his job. So when we were pregnant with our third, Hannah, we really pushed to do something different so we could be together. And my husband had an opportunity in Wellington, New Zealand. Oh, that's why you moved to New Zealand. That's why we moved there first and then came to Melbourne in December of 1999 at the turn of the century. And here we've been. 
Oh my gosh. See, this is why I like to go back from the very beginning, you know, all the way back to those times, because even just hearing it now, I just get such a sense of excitement thinking about you back then when the world was at your fingertips, before you actually knew anything of what was going to come. It's just, it gives me goosebumps just to think about it. And working on micro floppy disks now sort of sounds like a really long time ago, but at the time it was, that was really cutting edge. I mean, you're working for verbatim, Sony, 3M, like huge, huge companies. And I did actually read that you were the first woman in the company who had negotiated a part-time role. And, you know, that was 1994. And even when I was corporate in a law firm just a couple of years ago, that was still not really easy to do. So you were well before your time. And, you know, it just seems like you've been really a progressive thinker since way back when. <laughs> and I think that's that's a good message. I mean, you have to sort of work to your environment and your situation at the time. I loved my job and I poured my heart and soul into that job. And, and you know, any employer is going to love somebody who's so passionate and, you know, into, into the company. And I don't think they wanted to lose me either. So I, I think it was a very nice it was a situation we could work together on. And I, I, I think it worked really not without its challenges. You know, it wasn't I, I was trying to do things a bit differently. So with culture, just trying to have it all. And then even having parents, friends of my friends saying, oh, do you really need to work? Why don't you just enjoy staying home and being a mom? And my mom even said that. Oh. Can't you just be happy keeping a nice house? No. I, I cannot. <laughs> I love, love, love my children. But yeah, I thrived on that that work environment. Yeah. And it just reminds me as well that you just never know the way your pathway is going to twist and turn. And hearing the story in this order, you could kind of think, you know, you've had an incredible career, you've worked and traveled all around the world, you've had kids, you've moved countries, you know, that's it. Just coast off into the sunset. But you've had a whole nother chapter since then, an incredibly impressive, impactful twist in your story, which is actually the one that most of us know you for, that hearing the story now, you wouldn't have had any clue was going to unravel that way. I know, you know, for anybody listening who is young in their career and isn't sure that is this the career for me, just soak up whatever you're doing at that time, whatever, whatever you can learn, whatever skills it's giving you, those won't leave you. You will have those and those will come with you into the future. And I think that reminds me of something my mum always told me, which was, if you don't know what you want to do, you might as well do something. The time is going to pass anyway. So yes. just make the most of each opportunity because you don't know when those skills are going to become useful in a chapter that you haven't got an inkling about yet. And yes. I read, I think it was on your website that you wrote as, you know, the CEO and chairman of the board of a foundation, you know, you still love what you do. You love your work, but you don't love why you have to do it. And it's a really interesting and unique pivot. I think a lot of people have had big pivots in their career, but not necessarily caused by the circumstances that yours was triggered by. And you have managed to still turn it into something incredible through circumstances that you would maybe never have chosen, but you're just a wonderful example of turning a very challenging and traumatic experience into something really, really positive and creating a wonderful legacy. So tell us about your journey with Connor. I think many of us have heard part of the story, but for those who haven't, I think many of us would be really surprised to hear that pediatric brain cancer is the number one disease killer of, of young people. There's so much education to be done so tell us the story. Connor, I mean, he, he did have a lot of faith in me, I, I must say. He, he thought I was sort of could help him with anything, which was always nice that he believed in me. But <laughs> after he died and we decided to start the foundation, I'm like, brain cancer? Really, Connor, of all the challenges that you could be leaving me with, because it sounds <laughs> complicated. And believe me, it is. Um, but Connor was, I'll say, normal teenager. He was bright. He was funny. He wasn't hardworking. He was, I thought he was really lazy. But <laughs> after he was diagnosed, I said, Connor, you haven't been lazy. It's a brain tumor. And he goes, oh, you can't, you can't, you know, give the brain tumor credit for everything, all his ills. And I'm like, yes, I can. So he, in year 11, he was at Brighton Grammar in Melbourne. He was rowing. 
and he kept falling in doing single sculling, which was a bit unusual. Like, why is this happening? He was taking a three, four uh, legal studies. He was one of the top students and his teacher adored him. And the second half of the year, she started noticing that his memory was slipping, his grades were slipping, and the rowing, and he was tired, and he didn't feel well. I'll never forget it. I went on the Beyond Blue website and was reading symptoms of depression because he has cousins that have struggled with mental health. Mm. And not to stigmatize that, but I thought, well, if that's what it is, then we need to know and we need to be helping. Yeah. And he said, as clear as day, Mom, I'm not sad. I'm tired. Yeah. And I, that to me was, okay, he knows this is something different. And so one day I wrote a list of all of his symptoms. We've been back and forth to the doctors and in defense of doctors, some GPs will only diagnose one brain tumor their entire career. It is rare. Yes. It's the number one disease killer, but it is rare. And I think Connor presented, he was six, three, he was tan from rowing. Uh, he was strong looking. I, I just think that wasn't the first thing they were going to think because he was tired. And anyway, after a long, horrible, horrible day, at the end of that day, he was diagnosed with a very, very large brain tumor. That day? But that one day. It was a Monday in early December in 2011. And my husband had gone to the U.S. that morning or the day before for a meeting. I think it was the day before because I was able to get a hold of him at the end of the day. Oh. But I knew. I think a mother's intuition is really powerful. And I'll also tell any of your listeners who are either mothers now or will be mothers, don't ever, ever lose touch or faith in your own intuition. I knew deep in my core that it was not good and wasn't going to be good. Um, we were blessed with a brilliant brain surgeon, Peter McNeil, who is still very involved in our life. But Connor's type of tumor was big and it was difficult to remove. And so after Connor's surgery, he lost his short-term his short -term memory and also the movement of his right side. So if he had survived, we were looking at a very different life for him. And we had 18 months, and that's where my education, I'm not a medical person, by the way. I know some people are fascinated with medicine who aren't in the medical world, you know, health and trends. And, um, and I'm just not one of those people, I, I've never, you know, I, I, I get a funny feeling when I go into the hospital. Maybe I had a foreboding of what was going to be ahead for me because we had nine weeks in the hospital every single day when Connor was unwell. But yeah, you sort of get thrown into something and, you know, what can you do? But I will say that there were a few times during that journey with Connor, his attitude was incredible. He taught us amazing life lessons. He was very philosophical and said to me at one stage, when I said, you are not dying, Connor, I am basically, I alone will save you. Well, no, that wasn't going to happen. And he <laughs> said, mom, don't worry, we're all dying. In the, and in the scheme of time, we're not, not going to be that far apart. Oh, wow. And I know. I mean, he was just this most beautiful soul. So I do like to say he's left us with a lot of material, <laughs> which has been great, which is why we felt when he did pass away that we wanted to do something. And, and we didn't know. And that's, that's another part of the journey. Looking back seven years now, people say, are you surprised at what you've been able to do? I'm not. I'm glad. I'm not surprised per se. It's sort of looking ahead at the future. What is it? Who knows? But I was very passionate. And I also felt I was very fortunate because early on, we've, you know, we decided pediatrics, Connor was treated actually as an adult because he was 17. Mm. So he never actually was treated at Royal Children's or Monash Children's. He went straight to the adult world at five different hospitals. Um, five but different hospitals. Surgery at one hospital. He had radiation at two different hospitals. He had um, chemotherapy at a different hospital. He had rehab at another hospital. So, but what's beautiful is all of those institutions are still involved in our lives. They all get involved with Connor's run, which is great. So wow. I think the healthcare professionals are, are really our unsung heroes for sure, but that they want to stay involved is really great. Mm. And I, I also think, well, so what, when we decided pediatrics, I'll never forget Connor was having radiation at Peter Mac. And they were from another country for sure. 
And she was just a small girl. I was not even looking at her. I was just looking at my son going, he hated the radiation. It was terrible. And he kept saying, every time we went, they must have had a, a schedule similar to his. And Connor would say, look at that little girl, mom. I can't bear it. I can't bear that she has to go through this. And I was only thinking of him, but he was thinking of, of a small child. Mm-hmm. So I thought, yeah, when, when, you know, jumping ahead to starting our foundation, it's so what, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? There's a lot of charities there to help families that are going through the illness. And we had many reaching out and trying to support us. But when his, you know, the oncologist said, there is nothing we can do that would cure Connor's brain tumor. There is no cure. You know, the surgery is the best option and that couldn't get it all. And now really we're just buying time. And and I just couldn't believe that. So I am very sympathetic to families and parents who get that sort of a diagnosis. And it just did something to me. I just, it just didn't sound right to my ears. And I thought, if I can spend the rest of my life trying to change the odds, and I won't say cure because I think I'm not sure if we'll ever cure, but there can be better treatments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to be able to stop people getting diseases, but if we can have better treatments for those diseases that gives that person a better life and a better chance of living, then I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm more than okay with that. I am so passionate about <laughs> doing it and trying to help make a difference for other families. Yeah. Well, you are absolutely doing that and have been for so many years now. And I I definitely want to dive into that. But just for um, families or or mothers or children or anyone really listening, I think there's also a piece in allowing yourself to experience grief or just your any emotions that you consider adverse, I think we really push them down and suppress them and also try very quickly to pivot and turn them into something. But you also had two other children, Nick and Hannah and Scott. You know, I think marriages sometimes break apart through trauma, the trauma of losing a child. In the interim phase before you really took action and knew that you know, the foundation and Connor's run was the action that you were going to take, which I know was only a few months after he actually passed away, which is extraordinary. But talk us through how, you know, any advice you have for anyone else who is experiencing grief or some of the challenges as a family that you faced in allowing yourself space to feel what you felt and all of you also processing it at different times. I think it's a very hard thing to go through that people don't often talk about their experiences with grief but I think it helps for others to hear. I don't like to talk about dying either. I remember when, um, you know, we were thinking of what to call Connor's run. And my husband said, oh, in a few years, Connor will have been gone for a while. And maybe we should call it something different. And right after he died, people were afraid to say his name. Mm. And I hated that. So I'm, that's one of my selfish maybe isn't the right word, but it it just, I feel like we've created this whole thing and we've got Connor's name everywhere, which for me is so nice. But in terms of grief, I've got lots to say on this and I'll try to keep it short, but everybody grieves differently. So I came up with productive grieving because that is me as a person. I, Mm -hmm. if I sit and ponder and think and dwell, um, I'm better if I can put that to action where I've got something that I'm doing that feels like a positive response. So that that's just how I cope. Other people might take up meditation or yoga, but I would say to be kind to yourself. And I would also say to be kind to the other people around you. So my Connor, or brother and sister, Nick and Hannah, my husband, Scott, it's a lonely personal journey. And people get highs and lows, and those could be on different days. The remembering is special to you. Your memories are with that person, whether it's, and I've lost my parents. I've lost a brother since Connor's died. So I feel like I've got a lot of experience. Um, and I would also say that when somebody physically dies, it's amazing how spiritually and emotionally they actually don't die. In my heart, my love for Connor, and if I think, you know, of my parents, my grand, I love Connor as my son, exactly, exactly the same as I did when he was living. Mm. So you could say, well, that's sad. But then you could say, but if I never had that opportunity, if I had never had him, I wouldn't have had all of that love and experience. So I think we are afraid of death, but I have become less afraid as I've 
obviously gone through these experiences, um, I feel relationships are really powerful and important. And, you know, this being kind and loving the people you're with, I think, yeah, because life is short. Mm. And Connor gave us such amazing gifts when he was unwell. I think our entire family, his friends, his teachers, the people, our community felt he was worth celebrating. Yeah. And it's really beautiful. I think we are all quite fearful of our mortality. It's a very difficult topic to grapple with just psychologically. But when you are forced into it through an event like this, you do see people turn life into a celebration and look at the legacy that you've created for him. Everyone knows Connor's name. It's an absolutely beautiful thing that you've created for him. And as this journey has gone on, um, just with the research that we're funding, et cetera, we have we have come across amazing families. And it took me about four or five years to be able to emotionally get involved with other people's journeys. Um, And I think that's important too, because again, it's pretty raw. Mm. And I think I knew myself that I just had to buckle down and get our foundation started. But we met a lovely family, Virginia Ray, her daughter Pippa. They were the first family that we got to know. Um, And we did um, music therapy, which is something we offer to families because Connor had it. So I think in addition to the research, we have a national referral program for music therapy. And the Connor's music therapist it runs that program for us. <gasps> oh, I, I just got goosebumps. That's <laughs> it's so such beautiful. a beautiful part of what we do. And, you know, we let people know about it. But again, I let that be private for those families. But we've done something nice in COVID. We sent all the families a ukulele <gasps> just, as a, a, just as a gift. Oh, and Liz. I don't know, Connor was huge into music and loved Bob Marley. And that's, we've got our three little birds. Um, so we gave them a little music card with the three little bird chorus so they could, and I don't know if you know, the refrain of that song is don't worry about a thing. Cause every little thing's going to be okay. Yeah. And he used to play that for us. Oh. And so now that we can carry that on through the music is wonderful. But in addition to that, some of these families have embraced Connor's run and they have raised so much money for us And a few years ago, I thought we need to, I know how they feel. They haven't wanted to start a foundation. They're partnering with us, which is wonderful. Uh, But to name research in their children's name has been a really important part of our journey Mm. for what we're funding, what's important to that family. And then to have it named in their child's name is something special to their family and really important to us. So we're trying to do as much of that as we possibly can. I did read that, that there's research and PhDs being published in the children's names. I think that's just such a beautiful and really out of the box way to think of creating a legacy for other families. From a personal development perspective as well, you know, you've actually started a not-for-profit organization without any background. You've become a CEO and a chairwoman and raised like $7 million and created all those these programs and you're looking at, you know, funding immunotherapy and and just doing things that I'm sure you never expected you would be doing. No idea. You know, it's not too dissimilar to building a for-profit startup, but it also is much more personal and has a lot of grants and funding and structural things as well. And then, uh, you know, organizing the run and also the Connors Erg, the rowing things you've been doing, still connected with the States. And I saw MIT was getting involved. So, In the last, I think it's been seven years, how have you built the organization? How did the run come up? How did the rowing erg come up? How have all the different parts sort of developed over time? And also yourself as well. You mentioned that it took you a couple of years to be able to talk to other families. And I'm sure you as a family have grown into it as well. How has that all unraveled for you? Um, So just just on the foundation part and the board part I I didn't I had never heard you know I knew companies had boards but that was (laughs) I didn't even know what corporate governance really meant I guess I could have figured it out but this is another little pearl of wisdom and I think we all have it when people love to give advice oh yeah (laughs) always everybody's the arm we call it in America the armchair quarterback Uh, But, you know, it's easy. It's easy to make the call when you're sitting there, not in the the heat of it. And I get a lot of people giving me ideas and advice. But it's interesting how you have to sift through that. And certain little wisdoms, 
It's finding good people that can give you good advice and then actually listening and trying to remember that. So with our board, we got very early, very lucky to get a fantastic financial She's a genius, actually. She's amazing. Um, and also a very strong barrister, a legal barrister. So we were really lucky to get some strong help in that regard. And we tried to build our board uh, from that. And, and again, I basically, uh, you know, had coffees with people who were running smaller not-for-profits and asking them advice. So I come from sales and marketing. So I love ideas. I love creativity. I can workshop and brainstorm marketing all day long. I love <laughs> the rigor of the, you know, again, this corporate governance, the risk, the all the things that happen with the board that they need to be worried about is harder for me, even though I am a commerce, you know, have a commerce degree. So I, I did invest in the um, Australian Institute of Company Directors course, which I was saw super, that. super hard, way out outside my comfort zone. I had my daughter who's a commerce student helping me, um, but I got through it and that was, I thought that was important to have that basic, you know, that understanding. But in terms of our events, and I like to think of us as a bit of a startup because we aren't an NFP, so we don't have to do it the way anybody else has done it because I don't even know how they're doing it. <laughs> so I do, I do like to make sure we do it our way. Um, I mean, that feels right for us. And Connor is our guiding, he's our North Star, our guiding light. So Connor's run is a run he did from our home in Sandringham to the boat sheds for running. A lot of people know that story. He hated running. He actually hated running. Some people don't know that. So that's a bit of fun that we've created this whole run. And he would actually find it very, very funny. Um, he was trying to row in the U.S. at either Stanford or Wisconsin. Oh. And that started Connor's erg. I just emailed the coaches and got a meeting. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and I've done similar things with the research. So after the first Connors run, I guess I'm, you know, people say fearless. I've got lots of fears, but I sort of feel like I'm not, I'm doing this to help kids with brain cancer. Yeah. I'm not doing this for my own. And I think because of that, people appreciate that. Mm. And that's nice. And I also feel like I've got, like I said, all those prior years of experience that I can take with me I did an industry marketing job as one of my early jobs in my 20s, and I knew that there would be a pediatric brain cancer industry. And so I quickly found out what it was. We fund all the national and international events and have gotten to know all of the, you know, the players in pediatric <laughs> brain cancer research. And it is like anything, if you break it down, it's not that big of a world, mm -hmm. you know, there's lots in it, but literally just emailing and saying, will you meet me? Will you, you know, I'm trying to understand what we should fund. And, and these researchers have all said, yes, I'll take a half an hour, 45 minutes of my time. So that's been, um, that's been nice, actually. Oh, wow. Figuring it all out. I do love problem solving. I can tell. <laughs> and I like creative problem solving. I do. I like, and I don't know why, Again, maybe that young girl stuck in the cold in winters in Wisconsin with a big <laughs> imagination, just trying to, yeah, all those questions that I had unanswered, still trying to answer them. I love that uh, Connor was actually thinking of going back to Wisconsin too. Like he's gone the opposite direction. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, he went just for uni. I mean, it was sort of a dream for him and whether he would have done it or not. And that's, that's another thing, you know, brain cancer took that dream. From him. Mm. And that's, you know, those are the sort of things that happen when these terrible diseases happen. A lot goes along with the disease. And, you know, mm. him losing that opportunity was was part of that. But I think if he was watching from wherever he is, and I'm sure he is looking down at all those rowers at universities across the states rowing Connor's erg, he'd be like, wow, I never could have done that myself. <laughs> he also hated rowing. I mean, no, he loved rowing. He hated the erg. It's really hard. Have you ever? Done I hate it. Yeah, I hate it. Yeah. So, you know, it. they'd be timed, they'd time these two Ks and they'd all get up and, you know, they'd get sick and it was really intense. So, um, that we're having, that's a bit of fun too, I think. <laughs> and I mean, you've, you're such an expert in reimagining and reframing your life and your goals. And I mean, you've even done a TED talk last year on the topic itself. And then with COVID, having to rejig, 
Connor's run, which every year, you know, his birthday just passed. This year you're having to do it a little bit differently. Is it the seventh? This is the seventh year or the eighth year? This is our eighth. This is the eighth so year. seven. Yeah. The first one was in 2013, in September of 2013. So this will be the eighth. Yeah. So the run, the 18.8K run that he used to do has actually been renamed Connor's run, right? Like that stretch has been called yes. that. Yes. This year we can't all run in the same spot, obviously. So tell so us about so it was interesting, and I know all NFPs with all events, there seems to be a lot of these virtual uh, running, which makes sense, I guess. But I'm like, oh, wait, that's ours. Um, <laughs> other things can happen, which I, which I do understand. But, yeah, so when, when we, you know, we had an emergency board meeting, and it must have been maybe early April, late March, when everything was closing down, um, because we were ready to launch Connor's Run. And, well, we definitely weren't going to be able to launch it. And then were we even going to be able to have it? And our board felt it was too risky to, to say that by September, 5,000 people are going to be able to congregate. And so that I, of course, was very much wanting to go ahead and then change if we had to. But the advice of the board was, no, change mm -hmm. it now or cancel it now. Maybe just cancel it. And I was like, oh, no, 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 we can't. <laughs> we can't cancel it. So that was, I think that was, that sort of pushed us to really look at the event. And we thought, what what can we do? And so we, I have a great team. There's about 12 of us now, um, everybody part-time, but me, uh, but wonderful. And so um, we just really debated how could we do it? And so we came up with this Your Way Any Day in September. So for those of you who are listening that have actually done Connor's Run, it's it's great because it sells out. Mm, so it's right amazing. Now, always selling out. Uh, we, we haven't quite got like the music festivals where they sell out overnight. That was always my, takes us a few months. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but people want to get in. So this year I'm saying there's no FOMO. Everybody can get in. But it's interesting how some people get it. So we're asking, Connor did yoga as part of his rehab. And he was led through an affirmation. And he famously said now to his yoga teacher, she said, Connor, uh, finish the sentence, I will, whatever you want, keep it to yourself, T you can share it with me, and then we'll think about it. And he looked at her and said, I will be awesome. And he was terminally ill and knew it. Uh, and so she didn't tell me that until after he had passed away. So all the participants can finish their own I will on every bib. And we thought, well, how could, now can we make that I will part of this more uh, you know, everybody doing it on their own way. And so when you register now, you can uh, create your own I will. Mm. And we're giving people all sorts of examples. Uh, it doesn't even have to be running. It can be walking. It can be just smiling. It can be, you know, really just remembering. So people have been pretty clever with their I wills. Oh, gosh. I'm so, so excited to see how it unravels. And just you are so incredible at just being indefeatable like you're just <laughs> nothing can well, stop you in your tracks yeah, I love that you said that because part of that is I'm not letting brain cancer win that is so I'm I, that is so insightful <laughs> thank you for picking up on that because that is just no just like we're not going to let COVID win yeah I I said I said to Sarah I'm now talking to the audience before we got started about what I love about Melbourne is the essence of Melbourne's love and supportive events I mean I'm not sure Connor's run would have worked this well in the U.S. Um, I don't think Melburnians give themselves enough credit for how they embrace and support and get behind things, mm. uh, whether it be sport, whether it be their favorite coffee cafe, whether it be, you know, just getting behind a, a lady's lunch for something or a girl's night in or out or whatever. I just, there's something unique about Melbourne. And so much like brain cancer, we're not going to let COVID take that away from Melbourne either. Absolutely. And I, I'm sure there will be many people in the neighborhood, as I call it, that will be joining us in September. Guys, I'll make sure I include all the links for you because I would love us all to participate and rally around this as much as we can. Thank you. Well, I have just, I could speak to you for hours and hours and hours, but well, I should find it interesting. It's science, you know, but it's. No, no, it is absolutely fascinating. And um, usually I have a section, as you know, called an ATA, but I kind of feel like we've covered a lot of the challenges. 
and a lot of the barriers to your joy. But I would love to finish off with play TA because I also think particularly when you are as passionate about what you do as you and when there's a personal connection and also when you see the results of your work and your labor visually making an, an impact on people's lives, there's sort of very little incentive for you to rest, for you to have an identity outside of CEO, chairman of a charity board, Liz, you know, you're also a mother, Liz, you're a wife, Liz, like, is there any time for you to play? Are there outlets that you have that are just for your joy? They're not productive. You're not trying to learn or advance yourself or do a company director's course. What do you do just for joy? Yes, absolutely. Well, too, and I, and I am a fairly physical, you know, I do like to be busy and I like to do fitness and you know, all of that. But two things that, that I have done since Connor died, one is rowing. Oh, you so, row? Yes. Not at the moment, sadly. Yeah. But yes. As soon as we can, we thought we were going to get back in, in term three, but rowing was something as, as a parent and you watch your kids and it just looks so fantastic. I don't know. There's something about it. I just loved it. We didn't have it obviously in Wisconsin, but I think the this it, this part of that swimming mentality too. I don't know if I had known about rowing, I would have loved it. So after Connor died, three other moms said, "Let's take some lessons." They were all in the boat with Connor, so they're boys. So that was that was very therapeutic for me. And again, this is a really nice thing. I thought, "Oh, should I do it?" I don't know. It all seems hard. Don't know. Don't know. Anyway, but got in with beginners as well, and we just had so much fun. To last. <laughs> and now I'm addicted. I love it. I, Amazing. I row once or twice a week on the yard. I've got a great group that I row with. Um, not competitively. I probably could try to do that. They've got great masters. The, the part of the masters I like is they travel. Yeah. You know, they do all these great regattas overseas. So maybe one day. And the second thing is yoga. So I know yoga is really popular. Connor had yoga when he was unwell, along with the music therapy. Those were two of the things that he that he really got a lot out of personally. Mm. And I was just a busy running, going to the gym, spinning, and I hadn't settled down to actually understand yoga. And I know I'm preaching to the choir now for people who are yoga aficionados, <laughs> but I started yoga and both rowing and yoga are my way to connect with Connor. And they are so good for me. Um, so yeah. Those are my. Oh, Liz, they're beautiful. I just, I really, really admire the way you found ways to keep his spirit alive. I read once that you felt his physical bo body had left, but not his spirit, that he's still, he's still there for you. Because I think people do really struggle with grief when there's a passing, but you're a beautiful shining example that you can keep someone's spirit alive in your life. Second last question to finish up. What are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? And I imagine there's a lot of talk about charity and raising funds and doing amazing things, but are there just any normal random things about you? <laughs> well, two are kind of, one, and this is a little embarrassing, but I can clap <laughs> with one hand. Stop it. Do it now. Do it now. <laughs> have you, have you, I, I said to my family, I said, oh, I have to come up with three interesting things. What, you know, anyway, they all said, oh, you've got to tell them you can clap with one hand. How did you even discover that? My cousin can do it too. It must be a family thing. No, I can't do it. I'm like, <laughs> That's amazing. But the second, which is super, super fun is we have a gorgeous golden retriever. She's 16. You know, She's we 16. have one too, right? But yes, because I've seen your gorgeous, uh, it's Paul. Yes. yes. <laughs> so we have Maddie, Madison, Wisconsin dog. <gasps> oh, um, when she was two, and this is, says a lot about my personality. I said to the kids, let's let her have a litter of puppies in our house. Oh. I called the breeder who was absolutely gorgeous. And she said, well, you're insane. No. And I said, no, no, we can do it. We'll figure it out. No, no, no. <laughs> I can nothing. YouTube this, right? I'll be a breeder in five minutes. Don't you worry. If, if Instagram was a thing in, I don't know, it was 14 years ago because she's 16 now, these puppies would have been absolute celebrities. It was insanity. <laughs> so she had 13, 10 little. <gasps> And we would take them out for feedings after they got out of their whelping box and got a, a bit bigger. We'd take them into our front yard and people would line up 
to watch. Oh, gorgeous. Um, oh my gosh, Goldie puppies are the best. You would have broken the internet. But honestly, they overtook our entire life for two months. And so we delivered them. That is incredible. Unbelievable. It was, anyway, that was fun. And the third one, just quickly, is I know Joe Biden. I hope this is going to be a good news. Anyway, we won't go into all that, but um, his son died of a brain tumor. Oh my gosh. And he started the Moonshot Mission, and I met him in Washington, D.C., and I met him when he was here in Melbourne a few years ago. So, um, wow. Do you know, it's so interesting. And like, obviously, it's not quite. It's not a community you would want to have a reason to join, but you forget that in every area of life, there's a niche community. Yeah. There's just this whole world of people that connect through shared experiences or interests. And there's a world for like fencing. There's a world where like every interest and experience has a club in globally. I know, but it's actually great. Community is wonderful. You know, our geographic community, our brain cancer community. And, and that's nice too. So people don't feel alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to finish up, last question, what is your favorite quote? Oh, my favorite quote. Okay. Um, I love that you've prepared your notes. It's so, it just speaks to my heart. This is a quote that um, I'm not sure I could say it without having had it written down. It's by C.S. Lewis. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. One of my all-time favorites. Is it? Absolutely. Because I think we we think once we've chosen a path, we've chosen it forever. But really, at any time, every new day is a day that you can just wipe yeah. the slate clean and start again. Absolutely. And I, I think we can't be too hard on ourselves. You know, like, mm. I try not to be and I think that's something as I've gotten older, I've just, you know, am I going to be able to change the world? You know, maybe, maybe not. But hey, I'm going to try to have some fun trying. I think you already have, Liz. You're doing absolutely incredible things. Thank you so much for everything that you do and for your time today. And everyone join us for Your Way Any Day. Wait, Your Anyway. Your Way Any Day. Your Way Any Day in September. Thank you, Sarah. And just quickly, isn't it your husband who did such a fabulous job with the relief run? Yes, yeah. You need to tell him if he has any tips for us. I mean, you did a phenomenal job or that whole group. That was, I watched the whole thing. That was really inspiring. Oh, oh my gosh. I will pass that on. He'll be stoked. And absolutely, we'll both be running in September. So we'll make sure that he gets on to you. They don't have to run. They can walk. They can read a book. They can, whatever they, but just get involved and help us. Amazing. Amazing. Well, guys, I'll make sure there are links to everything in the show notes. And Liz, thank you so much for everything. Thank you, Sarah. Gosh, I finish episodes like this and just want to move heaven and earth for people like Liz. I would love to see some of you in the neighborhood. Join us for a run, a walk or whatever you choose in September. Maybe we could do something as a group. If anyone's interested, let me know. I will pop all the links in the show notes. And by in a group, of course, I mean not physically in a group, but as a metaphorical community. If you enjoyed listening or have any insights or experiences of your own to share, please do so tagging at Liz Dawes and or at RCD Foundation and myself so we can share them with the broader community. I hope you're all looking after yourselves at this crazy time and are seizing your yay in whatever way you can.